All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful uh, for the day you've given us and um, thankful for the time to gather to worship you. We pray for your people throughout the world as they uh, would gather and worship you today, that you would uh, provide um, new mercies to them, that they would be able to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray for those living in various um, dangers from from government, from wars, um, from different things, Lord, that they would um, entrust themselves to you as a sovereign creator, and um, they would know your goodness and faithfulness even today. We pray that we would know that as well, and that we would delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are looking at Deuteronomy. We just started this last week. We did our introduction to it. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter one. So you can turn there. We'll review real quick and ask, why is Deuteronomy here? This is the fifth book in the first five, right? The Pentateuch, those are grouped together as the books of Moses, the first five books. Um, So this brings us to the end of the Pentateuch. And why is it here? Well, Israel is at a crossroads, right? And there are two major events that are about to take place. One is they're about to go into the land. You have a new generation that has now fully arisen, and they are about to enter the land that God had promised. The second is that Moses is about to die. So we have new generation standing outside the land, and we have the need for a new leader who's going to be Joshua. We're going to get Joshua as the new leader by the end, but Moses is about to die. And so all of what's happening in Deuteronomy is at this crossroads, and it takes uh, place over a period of less than a year when they're standing outside the land waiting to go in. And it's a series of sermons by Moses to this new generation, explaining to them the covenant that God had made, the promises, the commands uh, that God had given them, right, in the old covenant, and reminding them of what it says, telling them how it's going to look in, or, in, in, or in terms of living it out once they get into the land, uh, and then calling them to recommit, this new generation, make a commitment that you're going to live in line with this covenant that God has made. Um, so that, that's really kind of why we have this here. Um, one commentator, Craigie, writes, success in possessing the promised land lay not in military prowess and strength, but in an unbroken covenant relationship with the Lord, who alone could bring victory. And so that's, that's what we see is these people need to Uh, fear and obey the Lord. So they're at this crossroads. They need to recommit to this, and Moses is going to call them to do just that. Uh, We did mention how, in some ways, Deuteronomy is like the Romans of the Old Testament. Um, You know, in New Testament, you have this, uh, the, the covenant work being done, the big act of redemption, right? Think of the Gospels. You think of in, in the books of Moses, you have the crossing of the Red Sea, the freeing of the people from slavery. That's kind of like, because they're going to keep going back to that. This is the God who redeemed you. You belong to him, right? Just like in the Gospels, this is your God. Jesus has come. He has died, risen from the dead, right? Um, so, so you have that happening, and then you have kind of the birth of this new people, uh, just like in the book of Acts, you have that happening, and then in the Pentateuch, you have Israel coming from Abraham. You have eventually Israel, right? This nation, this people of God. Um, and then you, you have a lot of the unpacking of all the theology. What does it mean to live this way in the book of Romans and then the rest of the epistles as well? And so in a similar way, you kind of have that happening in Deuteronomy. You kind of have this, uh, w- with this calling to recommit to the covenant with the new generation, there's also a, hey, as the people of God, this is what it's going to look like for you to live out all these realities. The fact that God is your redeeming God. The fact that God has made a covenant with you, right? Uh, What does that look like? How does this get applied? And so that's kind of what we're seeing in Deuteronomy. So today we're going to begin the first section, 
uh, which is really chapters one through four. We're not covering all that today. We're just going to cover chapter one today, but that's the first section, or you might say even the first speech that Moses gives, the first sermon he gives. He gives three different sermons in Deuteronomy. And the theme here is looking back at what God has done. Now, I didn't really mention this last time. Someone asked me about this, and it was in the footnotes last time. So if you were paying attention to the footnotes of the handout, um, well, I don't know why you would, but maybe, maybe you do. Um, I do sometimes. But So there's these... Um, Another thing we can say as we outline Deuteronomy is it also mirrors a, a treaty that would have been common around the time of Moses. There were these treaties that would be given between a suzerain or a king and then vassals, the people that would be under him. And, and so what would happen is he might deliver this people from attacking enemies. They may say, we need help. We're not big enough and strong enough. Will you come fight for us? He'll come fight for them. And then they'll make a treaty that says, look, I am your king. I've redeemed you or maybe he's even just conquered them, right? And, and then you're my people, this is what it's gonna look like. And so in those treaties, there's kind of a flow to the way it would go, and Deuteronomy somewhat follows that. So one thing that does help us do is it helps us date Deuteronomy a little, because you have some people in higher criticism that were doubting the dating of Deuteronomy, saying it comes along much later. Um, probably, this is, this is a piece of evidence that that's not true, besides the fact that we just take the Bible for what it says, and Jesus also said that Moses wrote these books, so we believe Jesus. So we have a lot of good reasons to believe it, but that's one piece of evidence. Um, but really, the, the thing I, I want to point out is we also can somewhat follow the structure according to that covenant or that treaty. Um, and so the first section of Deuteronomy follows the historical prologue section where they would outline, this is the history of how we've gotten to where we've gotten today and why this is your king and you are his vassals, right? And so there's kind of a calling to remember what's happened in the past. And that's what you have happening in this first section is this calling to remember what has happened. Look back at what God has done. Now, one thing that is different is this section is a lot longer than those suzerain vassal treaties would have been. So, we also recognize there's something unique about what God is doing here. This is not just a copy of, well, what is everyone else doing? We're going to do the same thing. This is really God as the king speaking to his people. And he's going to recount history, a lot of history, because that's important. God has, has lived among these people, right? He's worked among these people to bring salvation. And, uh, and so his historical dealings are really important as they look to the future. So we're going to talk a little more about history in a little while, but just keep that in the back of your mind. The next section, chapters 5 through 28, is the biggest section. We're not looking at that now, but um, just as a reminder, chapters 5 through 28, and that's covenant stipulations. So the covenant law and the need to obey. And so in the suzerain vassal treaties, this would be the section where they would also lay out the laws and say, this is what it's going to look like. This is the tribute you're going to pay, or this is what you're going to do. This is what the king's going to do in terms of providing protection and other things for you, right? So that's happening in this middle section. And then the one of the latter kind of last sections is blessings and curses. Here's what's going to happen if you don't keep the treaty, if you don't keep the covenant. Um, there are blessings and there are curses. If you do keep the covenant, here's what's going to happen. There are blessings. And so that's kind of how the flow of Deuteronomy goes. Uh, and then it ends with talking about Moses's death and um, Joshua being appointed as the new leader. So that is what we're doing in Deuteronomy. That's your review and also kind of sets you up for where we're at right now. Um, one thing we do need to recognize is, um, I mentioned this about history and how it's so important. Um, you know, I think in our cultural day, we live in a time where people either A, don't care about history and think it has no bearing on the present whatsoever. Everything is, everything is pr it's presentism, right? Everything is right now, what's pragmatic, what works right now, who cares about what we can learn from the past. Um, but I think when you read Deuteronomy, you realize that God's people can't be that way. Because we have, if there's one true God that's worked throughout history, we want to know what that God is like. We want to know what he's done. We want to know what he's promised. So what do we do? We go back and we look at history. 
specifically the revealed history we find in Scripture, but really all of history teaches us something about God. And so we, we would go and look at history. The other one is a rewriting of history just to secure whatever, whoever wants what they want today, right? We see that too. We're going to rewrite history just to get what we want today. Well, no, we don't do that either. So we need to be a people that holds to what God has said, what he's revealed about himself, because that tells us what he's like. Um, I mean, that's pretty incredible. I mean, this is different than other things, right? I mean, you think Buddhism, other things like that, it doesn't matter what really has happened. It's to some degree. It's just, are you going to apply these, these principles and have a good life or not? No, this is, there's one true God who we have a relationship with, and we will live in light of his face and face a judgment day. And so we need to know this one true God. And so we find history is really important for the people of God. That's why it's good to go back in the Old Testament and uh, Bible as a whole. So um, let's, let's see what we can learn here in chapter 1. Um, this really is going to set the stage for the rest of the sermon that he's going to deliver this first sermon. So we're going to see the prologue to it in verses 1 through 5. This is kind of the prologue to the first sermon. So in other words, the first sermon doesn't officially start in the first five verses. This is just kind of prologue. Um, and then it's going to get into the first sermon where he rehearses a bunch of history. Um, and you can see the title I gave this is Remembering the Past, God's Faithfulness, and Human Failures. So that's really what we're going to see in chapter 1. As I read this verses, I want you to listen for basic things like who, what, where and when, okay? Listen for those type of, be thinking in those categories and we'll, we'll talk through that. So Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazarath, and Dizhab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Aseroth and Erdi, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, dot, dot, dot. Then we move into the first sermon. Okay, so who? Who is involved? You can answer. Moses, right? And Moses is the one who God used to lead them out of enslavement in Egypt, right? Uh, Moses is the one through whom he mediated the old covenant when he gave the law in Exodus 20. Um, what else did Moses do? What happened when the people sinned badly and God was justly ready to wipe them out? What does Moses do? How does he function? Yeah, he intercedes. He fun functions as a mediator between, between the people and, and God. Um, he's a prophet, right? We see that Moses is a prophet, speaking God's authoritative words. So that's Moses. Now, who else is involved besides Moses? Yeah, all Israel. So we have all Israel is out here as well. Specifically, the people he's about to deal with are the, the people who would have been 20 years old and younger at the time of the rebellion. And we'll talk about the rebellion here in a few minutes, but that's, that's who he's talking to. This is the generation he's talking to. Um, now, where are they? You don't have to, this, I'll just give you a map because it goes to all these different places. So, um, they're there. So yeah, they're actually right there. So you can see um, you have uh, Canaan is the land they're going into, right? And so this is the Transjordan. Why is it called that? It's on the other side of the Jordan, right? Trans. 
cross, other side. Jordan's like right up in here. Um, so they're up there in the plains of Moab. That's where the, these uh, sermons are being given and they are getting ready to enter the land. Who knows where Egypt is in relation to this? It'd be south, be kind of this direction, right? So um, just a reminder, the fact that they're up here means that they took a very long route to get there, right? That's another reminder that really they should have come in through here. But they don't because they rebel. We're going to talk about that in a little while. So they, that's where they're at right now. That's the setting. Um, let's see. Uh, when is this? When's all this occurring? Yeah, about 40 years after they left Egypt. And we're also reminded that it really was an 11-day journey from, um, he calls it Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy, that's going to be the general word that gets used to refer to Mount Sinai. There are times where it's also, there may be one time where he refers to it as Mount Sinai differently. Um, So there's a couple different names. Uh, So it would have been down here. You see this little dotted line? This is coming up from kind of this general area. So uh, it took 11 days to get from, Um, the mountain where they received the law to Kadesh Barnea, which was on the outskirts of the land. So that 40-year marker is another reminder, things, these people rebelled. Because it only took 11 days to get here, it should have taken, what, another day or two to get up into the land. But it took 40 years to get all the way over here, right? Okay, so that's what's going on. Oh, also they had defeated two kings. So uh, at the end of the book of Numbers, they defeat some kings over on this side who attack them on the Transjordan side. Um, So that's a good reminder as well because, um, hey, God brought them to victory already before they've entered the land, right? They've had some some victorious battle stuff going on. Um, Okay, so what? What is going on? Well, verse one, Moses is getting ready to give this sermon speech thing. And in verse five, it says he's going to explain the law, the word meaning to expound, to make something absolutely clear. Uh, It's the same word that's used in chapter 27, verse eight, referring to a, a legibly clearly written out words of the law written on stone. In other words, he's going to make it clear to them. This is what God has said. This is what you are to do. So he's giving that type of sermon. That's what's going on. So we've already said that's really the theme is calling this new generation to a new commitment to live as God's people. And that's important. We're going to see that throughout Deuteronomy, right? I mean, every generation has to commit to follow the Lord. Just because you're born in a church setting and you grew up in a church setting does not mean you are a Christian. Uh, that's part of, I mean, I became a Christian pretty young. I was probably late elementary school. But before that, I can remember thinking, you know, I'm probably okay with God. I go to church. My mom's a Christian. Things are probably good. Um, and then the Lord opened my eyes. It, it was nothing. I mean, I kept hearing the same sermons over and over again. I heard the gospel. But then finally, it just, my eyes were open to see, you know what? I am a sinner. I need Jesus. And so we, every generation has to embrace Christ, right? New, afresh. Um, we preach the same Christ, the same message, and we, we ought not to ever assume it because it will be lost if we do. All right, well, that brings us to the first part of the first speech here where they're going to need to remember God's faithfulness. So um, I'm going to throw up another map here in a minute, but just hold on to that. Um, remembering God's faithfulness. Verses six through eight, we need to remember that, that God brought them, uh, the prior generation, to his place. Let me read that for you starting in verse, well, it's actually verses six through 18 is this whole section, but this first point A is is verses six through eight, where God brings them to his place. So this is the beginning of Moses' sermon. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, that is Sinai, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. 
take, uh, turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. So the new generation um, is that you have that old generation at Sinai. If, so he's starting back about 40 years earlier in his sermon. And that generation was told to do what in these verses? Go in, go up, and take the land, right? Um, now, um, so that's God's place. And he promised it to his people, right? And we could go all the way back to Genesis and we were reminded that he gave it to Abraham, Right? And then through Abraham, we have the, the promise passing down. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who also becomes known as what? Israel, right? So um, it goes, goes through these people. And you remember back in Genesis 2, he said initially he wasn't going to send them into the land. Remember, he, he even prophesies. He tells Abraham, you're gonna spend, your people are going to spend about 400 years in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. Um, and that's before, I mean, that, that happens later after Abraham. And one of the things he says is because the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure yet. God is very patient on these pagan nations, but he is going to pour out his judgment and he's going to do that through Israel taking the land, right? He's going to send Israel in to take the land and that will be his people's land. He says he swore it to their fathers. Um, that word swore occurs 29 times in Deuteronomy and often focuses on God's commitment to his people that he sovereignly is committed to doing what he said he's going to do. He makes a promise and he's, he puts his sovereignty and his power behind it. It's going to happen. He's going to do it. Um, so he's, why, does, why is this helpful for this generation to know this given where they're standing? Why is it helpful to know what we just said about God's place and his people? Are they just undertaking this because they want some, a new place to live? He's behind them. Yeah. So he told them to go take it. He's with them, right? He promised, he swore this land to them. Um, and so that's just an encouragement to the new generation to remember that. Because he's about to tell them, go up and take the land, right? So again, we see why history is important. It's important to remember what God has done if we're going to do what God wants us to do today. Um, so, because God hasn't changed, they can also believe his promises. Now, what comes next in the next section might seem like a digression, but it's not. I want you to listen, especially to the first verses that I'm going to read, and see how this fits with the same theme of getting this new generation ready to enter the land. Look at verses 9 through 11. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. So, this is Moses saying, I, I, I said to the people, this is what I said to them. Verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. Okay, now you may not realize why I'm saying it, it looks like a digression because I'm kind of making it easy by separating it here. If we kept reading, he's going to start talking about leaders that, he, that Moses appointed back about 40 years earlier. He says, I appointed leaders for you. Um, Okay, so what is the focus, though, of verses 9 through 11? Why is that so important, again, given where this generation is? God's blessed them even through all this waiting. Yeah, that's right. And dependence on him. That's right. Yep. So, so God has blessed them, and it's been in accord with his promises, right? He said that he was going to make them—remember the promise to Abraham? Does any of this sound similar? 
right? I mean, make your descendants as many as the stars, much as the sand on the seashore. That's what we have happening here. We, so we have reminders of, look, God promised this place to his people. He promised to make his people numerous, a great nation. He's done these things, right? So, so when he gets to the point where he says, obey God in all of life, go into the land and obey him in the land. Trust him. And we talked about how trust and obey are really two sides of the same coin, right? Because if I trust God and I really trust that he is the king of the universe, he is good, he is wise, then when he says to do something, what does trust do? It obeys. These are not actually two totally separate things in that sense, right? Now, if you, if you just obey because you think you can manipulate God's character to do something else, well, that's not out of trust and that is different. That's legalism because you're saying, look, if I just do a bunch of good stuff, I'll get God to like me. God has said that's not how it's going to work, Right? So that's different, but, but, but obeying because I trust, those, those are two sides of the same coin, and that's good. And that's what happens here. Uh, he's calling them to obey. So God's promised you these things. We see God's faithfulness. Um, look at verse, uh, well, I already quoted Genesis 15.5. That's where he talks about the offspring in Genesis 15.5, if you're looking for that reference. Now, this is a, a good um, thing, but a problem is created by this back in the day, which is, Moses says, look, you guys were so numerous, um, leading that big of a group was going to be too big for one man, practically speaking. So look at verses, uh, verse 12. How can I bear, uh, bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? So what does he do? Look at verse 13. Choose for your, uh, fr- sorry, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as head, heads over you. Commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. So He's talking about how they need all these people. Um, so in one sense, there's, we could say it's a little bit of a digression because he's going he's to get into some specifics about these guys and what their roles were. But, but you see how it ties into the overall purpose of the sermon and encouraging this new generation is this was tangible evidence that God had fulfilled his promise in making them a great nation. You don't need a bunch of leaders if you don't have a bunch of people, right? You don't need like 20 leaders if you've got, I don't know, 21 people in the group right? So the point is, this was tangible evidence. God had made them a great people. God was being faithful to his promises. Um, so he, he says, we're going we're gonna to make these um, leaders. And it, in a fallen world, they would need this because even as God's people, they're going to continue to have issues. And so verses 16 through 18, this is what he told these, uh, these leaders. And I charged, this is verse 16, I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time, all the things that you should do. Okay, so what are some things he told these guys? This is some good things to learn about justice. What are some things that these guys were supposed to do as judges? Not be partial. Yeah, they were not to be partial, right? They were not, it wasn't like, well, you're rich, so you must be right, because we know rich people are always right. Or you're poor, so you must always be right, right? And we, honestly, we have, we have kind of that happening in our culture, don't we? But this is not new. Every generation, because of the sinful heart, is always tempted to show partiality, Right? 
Um, every, every society has had issues with, we call it, maybe we call it racism. That's partiality. Maybe we call it some form of injustice where, where the, the rich are taking advantage of the poor. That's partiality, right? Um, or where the poor are abusing the rich, right? I should have extra rights because I'm poor. No, equal treatment before the law was the way God designed it, which is, which is good. Right? It means no one should be able to abuse the system to get their own way when it's not right. No, what we're looking for, justice, is what is right. Giving what is due to a person, whether it's punishment or reward, whether it's protection or judgment. Right? That's what the law should do. And so that's what these, these people were supposed to do. Now, what's the reason that they were to, to um, act this way in terms of their judiciary and their leadership, according to verse 17? That word for gives you a because. Yeah, the judgment is God's. So there's a reminder that God is the ultimate judge. And so you're to judge in line with what God has said, who he is, realizing that ultimately we all have to give an account to the judge. Right? So every um, judge, human judge, should recognize that and fear God when they make judgment, shouldn't they? And give equal treatment to different people. Uh, and this is, by the way, this is true for, um, now it is true that the aliens, so the people who are not Israelites but come and say, I want to live in Israel initially, right? They, they wouldn't necessarily have the same land rights and all those things initially because they're not part of that original people, but they would get equal treatment under the law. When there came time for judgment, it wasn't like, well, you're an alien, so you know, we're not gonna listen to, to you, you're right in this situation, but you're not one of us. No, righteousness is righteousness, regardless of who the people are. And so that was what was going to happen. Okay. Um, but as we know, so, so th- things are going well. So God has multiplied his people. Uh, he's brought them to the place, which we saw they're kind of down here in this um, Kadesh Barnea area. He's brought them to the place. Uh, he's given them his law and even ways to apply it through judges. So God's people, God's place, God's rule, that's what we're looking for in the Old Covenant, or really the whole storyline of the Bible, right? From Genesis on, that's what you have. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. So that is all good, but if you remember from our study of numbers, things take a turn, right? The people do not obey God, they rebel. And so not only do the Israelites, this new generation, they need to remember God's faithfulness, which is what we've been seeing so far. They also need to remember human failures. So if, so, you know, as you think about history, that's what you want to learn from as you look in the scriptures. What do we learn about God's faithfulness and what do we learn about the human propensity to sin and fail and rebel? That's going to help set you on the right course when you heed what scripture says on those issues. We need to know who God is and we need to know who we are, right? Okay, so remember your parents' rebellion. Before I jump into that, any thoughts or questions on God's faithfulness and what we've seen so far? We good? All right. Well, let's talk about their parents' rebellion, the previous generation failures. So they're approaching the land in verses 19 through 25. Look at verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb, again, that's Sinai, and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. So this section that he's about to get into is covered, if if you just want to go back and look at it on your own, it's covered in Numbers 13 and 14, the section we're about to enter into here that he's recounting in Deuteronomy. So this first generation, they come, okay, so uh, let me go back a second. Okay, so 
I, I tried to blow it up to make it big enough to see. Otherwise, it would have been nice to have this all as one map. We could have done that, but I want you to be able to see what's going on. So just note where this will help get your bearings. You see Edom is down here. You're going to see that in the next map because it's just going to shift up. Okay, so the Mediterranean's over here. Edom's here. Promised Land is here. Okay, so now you see Edom is up there. So all we've done is shift down. You can see the Red Sea. That's kind of the area they came out of originally. So at the bottom, you see Mount Sinai. It says that way to Mount Sinai. So that's what he's saying. You came, they came from there, and they came up to Kadesh Barnea. That's where they are. So the first generation, he keeps using this we language and, and you language. Didn't that generation die out? Um, Jim pointed this out last week to me. I thought this was helpful. Um, because you do, if you just read this, you see all the, you know, uh, we set out, you set out, you did this. Well, he's talking to the new generation. But remember, it was the generation that was what? They were 20 and older. So there would have been some who were as old as 20 that are now probably in their 60s about to enter the land. Right? So you have that group. And then also there's probably a secondary reason. The secondary reason probably is there's this continuity between the old and new generation too. Right? Just like, you, the, this was God's people, this is your history, this applies to you too, right? This is, this is who you are, this is your identity as God's people. Um, okay, so let's look at verses uh, 20 through 21. I'm just going to go to a black slide so you don't keep getting distracted with that now. Verse 20, and I said to you, you have come, or sorry, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord the God your, of your fathers has told you, do not fear or be dismayed. So the, the Lord set the land before them like food on a plate. He tells them to go in to take it. And uh, what else does he tell them besides go in and take it? Do not be afraid. Yeah, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Um, there would be things to fear, right? There's, there's people living in the land who are going to be enemies. So let's see what he says here in verses 22 through 25. Then... All of you uh, came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and spied it out. Then... Uh, and they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. So, um, hey, it's confirmed. God said it was a good land. They saw it was a good land. They confirmed that, right? That is the, the initial report of these spies. It is a good land. They all, and they all said that, by the way, that it was a good land. So when you read the next word, look at verse 26. What's the next word in your Bible? Yet or but? Is that a good word to read after what we just saw? Right? You've come up here. God's promised you this land. Go up and take it. Don't be afraid. We send in the spies. Hey, it's a good land. But yet we have a problem. Right? Um, now this, this conjunction can be really good when it says things like in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? But, and it talks about God who's rich in mercy and what he did. But when you're talking about who God is and what he's promised and what he's commanded, and you say, yeah, 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 but we have a problem. Now, we do this in our own lives, don't we? God, I know you said this, but you don't know my circumstances. But you don't understand blah, 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 right? Whatever it is. Um, I know you've told me to love these people, but you don't understand. Look at them, right? That's not going to end well, and it doesn't for them either. Here's their rebellion in verse 26. Yet you would not go up 
Man, that's exactly what God told them to do. Go up. And they say, we will not go up. What do they do instead? But rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. So they rebelled. What else do they do? And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Um, where, uh, where are we going up? So they're kind of, now they're like, but you know, where's God sending us? Our brothers have made our hearts melt saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. So I told them to go up. They say, we won't go up. Why? He told them not to be afraid because we're afraid, right? So they're disobeying God's direct commands. Um, notice though, how this fits into how they're viewing God. What's their view of God at this time, according to this passage? Small God, yes. Yeah, they're defaming his character. Yeah, yeah, they're defaming his character, his faithfulness. They call him a liar. Yeah, they call him a liar, right? You're my people. I'm going to bring you out that you might out of enslavement that you may worship me. And what do they say? He brought him out to do. Destroy. To destroy us. He hated us. So it's not because you have steadfast love and that you love that you want us to serve you that you brought us out. It's because you hated us that you brought us out. Now we can do that too, can't we? Um, whenever we end up in difficult circumstances. Now remember, these people, they have been through, they went through a scary wilderness. It said that. It called it a terrifying wilderness earlier that we just read. Um, they've seen big, scary enemies. Those things are real. And, and, and maybe it's not inherently sinful to feel an initial sense of fear. But I think when God says, do not be afraid, what he means is, don't be mastered by your fear. Don't make, and fear and desire are two sides of the same coin. So, don't be afraid in the sense that what you're afraid of losing, what you desire most is your comfort, your sense of control, whatever it might be. Instead, fear God and desire to honor him above all else. That's what they should have been doing. So we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? We desire something more than God, whether it's comfort, peace, money, power, pleasure, whatever it might be. We start desiring it more than God. We fear losing it more than we fear displeasing God. And what do we end up doing about God? We often end up questioning God and we feel like we have really good reasons to do it, don't we? We're very good at rationalizing. Well, they're big, scary people in the land. You know, well, God, you don't understand. I need this or I need that. And uh, so we just need to recognize and be honest with ourselves and before the Lord that such rationalizing is not good, right? That's, that's not the way to go. And then doubting God's character is not the right way to go. Was it inherently sinful then for them to have sent the 12 to check it out? Because it seems like a good idea. Like, let's find the right. best route to go. But it didn't seem like they seek God's face in that at all. And they just said, hey, right. this seems like a good idea. Let's do this. Should their response have been, God said it's ours. Let's get our stuff ready. Let's go. And there's no need to go look at what's there. Right. Um, I want to say I read, was it, in, was it in here? Let me see. Is it Numbers 13 where it? It's the verse 1. Go ahead and read that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out men for yourself to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. There you go. Yep. So when you so so it's a good question just based on what we read. But with that as the backdrop, we're also reminded that both things are happening here. The people are wanting to send them in, and God is saying, send them in. Right? Um, so, you know, test testing comes, doesn't it? Where there, there there can be a test. Now, I think the motives would be the issue, right? So if my motive is well, look, if it ends up being something that I don't want, my answer is going to be no, God, right? Uh, but if it's like, I mean, there could be legitimate strategy reasons, legitimate reminders that God is faithful. God had said it's a good land flowing with milk and honey. They come, they find that's exactly what it is, right? Um, so it was, it was a testing. 
and they fail the test, don't they? Um, so good question. Okay, um, so we need to recognize our own propensity to doubt God's goodness, to believe that he hates us in times of trial or difficulty or fearful circumstances, and instead trust him. When he says he's full of steadfast love towards his people, believe that. Um, live, that's living by faith, isn't it? Rather than just by sight. Well, in verses 29 through 31, we continue this part right here. And then Moses says, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. So just a reminder, God told him not to be afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Now notice this. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So what's he doing? He's doing the same thing that he's telling this new generation. Look back at what God did. He's been faithful. Trust him. So they're saying, look, we're scared right now. He's saying, okay, I get that. But just as he did this back here, he's going to do the same thing. He promised this, he's going to do it. Trust him. And in the wilderness, um, oh, sorry, so uh, fight for you before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way you went until you came to this place. That's covenant style language that God is their father and they are his son. He, He says, God has carried you through this wilderness. He's carried you through these dangers. He is the divine kingly father. You are his son. So, um, how do they respond to Moses' renewed call to obey? Verse 32, yeah, yet, we see that word again. That is not a good word to see in this context. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents, in fire by night and in cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. God had had been leading the people, right, through that pillar of fire and cloud, Um, He's been leading them, and they would not follow him. So we see that contrast. It's not good. They're not believing God. All sin is really rooted in unbelief, isn't it? Right? The reason I sin is because I don't really believe that God is as good as he said he is. I don't believe uh, that what he said is actually right. I believe that I know better. Right? All this is disbelief, unbelief. Um, So here the people are facing a test of their trust in God and they doubt. So we need to recognize that too. When we go through wilderness times, we need to trust God, uh, not believe that he's brought us into that difficult time of testing to destroy us, but rather God has promised that I will have a full inheritance in Christ. He has sent his son to die. He has raised him from the dead that I might live forever with him. Right? Think of Romans 8.32. If he gave us his son, he's going to freely give us all that we need. If so we, we look back to that as New Testament believers whenever we're tempted to doubt God in times of trial. Well, God, you brought me here because you hate me and to destroy, and to destroy me. That's not true. You brought me here because you love me and you're testing me, right? And you are gonna be with me in it. Just like I said, you, he was with you, right? He's going with you into battle type thing. That was true then and it's true now. Help me, right? Help me believe you. Um, and there are real dangers. I mean, you see that here. They're facing real dangers. So we need to remember that as we look back. And in fact, even as you read the Bible, you need to remember these things. If, if God was, was acting this way for Israel uh, through Christ in the New Testament, in the early church, these are all signs of his faithfulness to us. You, we are not Israel. I get that. There is a distinction, right? But as New Covenant believers, the things that God did for Israel, he is the one true God. That character, those actions all brought about the fullness of his revelation in Jesus Christ, our salvation. So this is our history. Even th- we, can, we can say that while at the same time saying that doesn't mean we replaced Israel and there's no at all future for Israel. We don't have to say that. We can say God's still, because we read Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, right in that area, we see the future plans. 
But my point is, this still applies to us in a very direct way because th- he did all this to bring about our salvation in Christ. So when you read this, don't just read it as like, well, yeah, good, God did that for Israel. He did that that you might be saved. Right? You are part of this story. And so we ought to learn to trust God. Um, in fact, we have more reasons to trust God even than Israel. You might think, well, if I could see God leading me in a pillar of fire and all this other stuff, I trust him. But you have a lot more than that, actually. You live in a time when Jesus has come into time, space, and history, physically lived, the full re- revelation of God, John 1, right? Um, made God known to us in that way, died, rose again. We have great promises. Well, we need to keep going here. Verses 34 through 40, God's judgment on Israel. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to your fathers except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. This idea is, is here that he completely filled his heart up with pursuing the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord. That's what Caleb did. That's why he was different. That's why he would get to enter the land. Verse 37, even with me, Moses says, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Moses is not gonna enter the land. That actually, the reason for that directly happens later in the storyline. Moses sins by not uh, regarding the God as holy before the people and the way he strikes the rock. But I think his point here is, he ties it in here because had they not rebelled, they wouldn't have been in that situation later where Moses also sins. And by the way, we see sin often, sin and rebellion often produces more sin and rebellion. So there's a sense in which um, we also, and this is maybe just a helpful application to us, we're very individualistic in the way we think. So we tend to think, look, if I sin, that's okay, I'll make it right with God and everything will be all right. And that's true, God forgives us, that's true. But we also need to recognize that sin has a contaminating effect on others and it will drag others down. Think about how often that happens, right? There's maybe um, bad leadership, right? Or um, a husband who's not a good leader. And so then the wife is tempted to rebel, Right? So it, it, you see how it does, children want to rebel because their parents maybe don't do that. Now, they're responsible for their sin. That's true. But we also see that it's not just this isolated little just me and God thing. Right? It affects other people around us. And so we need to be aware of that and take sin very seriously. Um, okay, so then we, we see here in verses 38 through 39... Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit the land. So that's a reminder that we've seen already. Joshua is going to be the next leader. Verse 39, and as for, you, as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So, um, and this will extend all the way to those 20 years and up, and I think part of that's because they probably did not have uh, the authority to make the decision whether they were going to go in the land or not. That's probably part of it. Um, but they're, they're not going to be able to go in there. And again, realize the Israelites sound like they were giving good reasons why they weren't going to enter the land, right? Just because you have a good reason to sin does not mean it's a good idea to sin, right? I mean, they're saying, look, our children, they're going to be destroyed in this war, and God, and so, so the ironic thing is, their children are the ones about to enter the land, right? Actually, the opposite happened that what they thought was going to happen because of their sin. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's encouraging when he says they shall possess it. Uh, this is, I mean, what a wonderful promise that is. The shalls of the Bible, right? These promises that are ironclad. They shall have it. It will happen without a doubt. And then God um, gives them this command in verse 40. But as for you, turn Uh, and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Well, then what ends up happening is the people, they they don't actually repent. 
Look at what they do next in verses 41 and following. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so I just said they haven't repented. You might think that means they repented when they said they sinned. They have not repented. Look at, look at this. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and, uh, sorry, and every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. The Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up and fight for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. This is not true repentance. What are they sorry about? They're sorry about the consequences right? Unbelievers are often sorry about consequences. That doesn't prove that you're a Christian just because you're sorry that you got caught doing something bad. Um, and by the way, this is the same thing. It's not that people want to go to hell. I think there are plenty of people that don't want to go to hell. They're very sorry if they're told they have to go to hell. But they absolutely are not submitting to God. They have no desire for the king of heaven. They want heaven as long as God's not there. And it doesn't work that way. So true repentance, we see this in 2 Corinthians as well. True repentance, godly sorrow, is sorrow not just over the consequences, but because I've offended God, and now I want to do what God says. And I think that's what you have happening here, right? Or should, or should have happened here. You have a, like a foil of that. They should have said, we're sorry. Do you still want us to go in the land? What do you want us to do? And then done, did what he said, but they don't. They say, no, now we're going to go in. And what is it? It's presumption at this point, because God says, I'm not going with you. And they say, but we're going to go anyway. So again, it's kind of like that thing. These people, they, 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 they don't want to go to hell. They, 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 they want to go to a place that's like heaven and they could care less if God's there. In fact, they don't want God there. You're not with us? That's fine. We're going to go anyway. That's not true repentance. Yeah. They love themselves and trust themselves more than God. Right. Yep. We love ourselves and trust ourselves more than God and we end up in a situation like this. So then verses 44 through 45. Um, they, so they wouldn't listen to to. to God's word through Moses in verse 43. Look at verse 44. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as uh, Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So it's, we get the picture. It's like a little boy um, beating at a bee's nest with a stick. Maybe you've been that boy at some point in your life, right? What happens? They're not happy. They chase you down. That's exactly what happens here. They chase them down. And notice what is different. It's not that like there was a different change, humanly speaking, in the matchup. It was God wasn't going to go with them. So what was going to be the only reason they would be victorious? God was going to be with them. So think about how that communicates to this new generation. Your hope is in God being with you. And he says he is with you. And this is his covenant. Live like you are his people so that he will be among you. That's what the call is. When these people, they, they start crying out to God at the end and says, God will not listen. Well, back, the same word was used back in verse 43. You would not listen. So now they're facing this uh, discipline from the Lord. And then in verse 46, so you remained in Kadesh, so back in Kadesh Barnea, many days, the days that you remained there. So part of their wilderness time, that 40 years, part of it, a good chunk of it might have been spent in Kadesh Barnea. So this is the beginning of the first sermon Moses gives. The, it calls this new generation to remember God's faithfulness and the previous generation's rebellion. We're called to remember similar things, to remember God's faithfulness as the grounding for our faith, our continued ongoing present trust in him. And uh, we need to learn to trust and obey God. As we see who he is, we need to trust him, we need to obey him um, and not be like that generation that rebelled. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, thank you for the warnings that we find in the life of Israel. 
but also thank you uh, so much for the examples of your faithfulness, God. God, we just think of how this generation was under your, your discipline, even your judgment, and yet um, you were faithful to your promises. The new generation, these children would enter the land. And, uh, and we long to enter the heavenly rest that you have for us. We pray that we would be found um, working and walking in the power of your spirit, uh, relying on you, uh, trusting you, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.